0: Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. During the month of August, with Congress in recess, we decided to do something a little bit different here on Capitol Conversations. So during recess, members of Congress, both the House and the Senate, are back home in their home states and districts. And so the policy debates in the news here on Capitol Hill really slows down in August. So we decided that instead of our usual policy roundtable conversations, uh, we would do interviews with leaders that we admire one-on-one. So last week we started off our first August profile where I sat down and interviewed ERLC President Russell Moore about his life from Biloxi, Mississippi to Washington, D.C., uh, and it was a great conversation. I will link to it in the show notes, and I'd highly encourage you to, to take a moment and listen to it. Uh, this week, I'm really excited to bring you a conversation highlighting uh, a leader who's earlier on in his career uh, than most of the leaders that you might think about who are shaping Christian engagement in politics. But we're excited to profile him here on Capital Conversation because he's a leader who is a mover and shaker and having a big influence even early on uh, in his in his career. And that leader is Justin Gibbony. Justin Justin founded the And Campaign, which he will get into in this episode, but it's a phenomenal organization uh, that I'm excited for you to learn more about. For this interview, my colleague Stephen Harris sat down with Justin here at the Leland House they had a great wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Justin Gibney is an attorney and a political strategist in Atlanta, Georgia. He's managed many successful campaigns for both elected officials and various referendums. Uh, in 2012 and 2016, Georgia's 5th Congressional District elected Justin Gibney as a delegate for the Democratic National Convention and he served as the co-chair of Obama for America's Gen for Atlanta initiative. A former Vanderbilt University football player and law student, Justin served on the Urban League of Greater Atlanta board of directors. Additionally, Justin has participated in Lead Atlanta, Outstanding Atlanta, and the Georgia Bar Association's Leadership Academy. He's written op-eds for publications such as Christianity uh, Today and, uh, and, and many others that we will link to in the show notes. Uh, he and Stephen had a, had a wonderful conversation, and I'm excited to bring it to you now.
1: Justin, appreciate you being here, man. Oh, thanks for having me, brother. Absolutely. Now, some people out there might have heard of your name. They've heard things you're doing with ANN Campaign. Uh, The Lord's just been using you mightily to do great work in the kind of area of religion and politics. What I want our hearers to get a, a sense of is just your background, kind of how you approach this work where'd you grow up, things like that, just to hear about the the ways in which, you know, you've kind of navigated up to the point where you work now. And so just want to start off with some background stuff to kind of really let our listeners know what kind of formed and shaped you. So, uh, and you and I, we've talked a little bit about some of this stuff, but some of this stuff we haven't ever, we've never got into. And so I'm excited to to hear it myself, starting with the common one, you know, where are you from?
2: So I'm originally from Denver, Colorado, Uh, born and raised there, left there at 18, uh, to go to Nashville, Tennessee on a football scholarship to Vanderbilt University. BU?
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, Denver. Denver's where I'm born and raised. Cool. Um now, one of the things I think people often aren't used to thinking about with with regard to where they grew up, their home their you know, their home life, is there anything memorable from Denver that, you know, when I think of Denver, this is one of my favorite thoughts about where I grew up. What would that be?
2: Yeah, when I think of Denver, since I don't get back as often as I would like to, the first thing I probably think about is uh, the mountains mm. so family in the mountains uh is certainly something that uh comes to mind and that i miss
1: quite a bit a lot of people don't have that memory bro. <laughs> family in the mountains that's, yeah. just, that's that's a very unique uh unique memory you got so you mentioned you know you left from denver you're 18 on a football scholarship so you grew up playing football
2: yeah i played football since i was seven or eight years old okay okay Since I any remember. other sports
1: it was all about football no it's a football basketball track so what what made you narrow in with obviously the scholarship, but what, what made you narrow in on, on on the football path? Yeah, well, I mean,
2: I'm only six foot, so that that's part of it. So basketball probably wasn't as realistic, but I but I grew to really, really love uh, football. I think it, as far as character building, team play and all that stuff, man, football has just been a, a really, really a blessing to me. Cool. So you
1: so 18 head off to Vandy. Now, what year was that? What was your freshman year? Ninety-nine. Ninety-nine. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I didn't show up until 2000. When did I start Vanderbilt? 2003. And so we had a little bit of overlap, but Mm -hmm. not a lot. I mean, in Vanderbilt, you know, we talked about this at an event we were at uh, a couple weeks ago, June 3 in in Atlanta. Mm Mm-hmm. Vu is like this spot where a lot of cats have come out of. We just recognize this. My, Micah Edmondson, uh, was at Vandy for a spell. A couple other brothers. So v- Vanderbilt's on the map. You know, most folks don't, don't oh, know yeah. that. Joseph Williams. Oh, Joseph yeah. Williams. Yeah. So a lot of cats have come out of Vanderbilt. So you were there at Vandy, went on a football scholarship. And so, what was your what was your area of focus? So
2: I was focused on uh social policy and I okay. had a minor in philosophy. So human okay. and organizational
1: development focused on social policy, minor in uh philosophy. So you had a kind of policy focus when you were an undergrad and their football, they're doing policy work, HOD, HOD work. So it was was it during undergrad years where your interest in the policy space kind of crystallized? A little later than that. So okay. I,
2: I was initially interested in politics. Early on, because my my father kind of put me on to uh, political biographies, so I was always interested in reading about presidents and learning yeah. about people who who did policy, and so that's where my general polit- political gotcha. interest came from. And in college, I wasn't so focused; I wasn't as focused on it. Yeah. Uh, I I did social policy. I was interested in some of the stuff I was learning. It didn't crystallize probably until law school. Okay, okay. So you finish Vandy in what year? finished Vandy in 03 from uh, undergrad, from undergrad. And 06 and uh, law school
1: 06 law school. Mm-hmm. Now, and I don't know where this fits in in your in your timeline. So you are you are married with how many kids now?
2: I'm married with three kids, three boys. Three uh, boys. Cooper, Chase and Crew. Okay, okay. Now, so when did you meet your bride? I met my bride while I was in law school. I was at Vanderbilt. Obviously, she was at Tennessee State, across the tracks.
1: Okay. okay. Was she in grad school as well? Or? She was still an undergrad. You yeah, she undergrad. was a senior. Okay. Yeah. okay. So at TSU. I didn't see. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So TSU, you're in law school. You meet your bride. Did you all get married while you are in law school? No, we got married years later. Years later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And three boys. Um, and what's their ages? They are five, three, and Three months. Okay, so yeah, you got you got some stuff four months, going on. four months stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you probably hectic. didn't even sleep last night. It's hectic. So was was law school kind of on your radar early on, or was that something you kind of said, okay, maybe I need to look at going into this space? How did how did you land on that?
2: Yeah, it was something I honestly I never even questioned. Okay. um My father had always told me that he and his father wanted to be attorneys. Never really had the opportunity to do so. And so it's just something I accepted from the beginning that okay, I'm gonna be an attorney.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So I mean so that's interesting because I mean, even as I think about my own kids, you know, I am like, you know, Jude, you can do whatever you want after you get your PhD. So that's 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 <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's fascinating. So you're in in law school and my bride's an attorney, so I know that the in many ways it's kind of set what you're what you're studying, what you're looking at. You kind of have your interests and stuff. Um, so as you're over those three years, are you thinking about what you're doing at what you're going to do afterwards? What, what was the next thing you did once you graduated?
2: So initially, when I first got to law school, I was thinking about going into criminal law. Okay, so I was thinking about going and be a public defender or something like that. Um, but I actually, did my first internship with the, the prosecutor's office, the gotcha. DA. Okay, uh, so that's what I wanted to do originally. Ended up. Uh, looking at my law school loans and all that stuff, <laughs> and saying, you know what, I might want to do something a little more uh, corporate for a while. <laughs> and so, I left law school and ended up going into um, medical malpractice defense. Oh yeah, for a few years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you went in corporate, mm-hmm. but no, that,
1: that that's real though. I mean, I mean, same. My bride had the same story. You know, it's like okay, you can let's let's look at what we're gonna do to kind of stack a little bit or really stack down. So medical malpractice, you did that. How many years did you do that? Did that for about
2: three three years,
1: okay. maybe just over three years. Yeah. Okay. And so when you finish that up, then what are you thinking?
2: So when I finished that up, I did I did my own thing for a little bit, but that's when I got into politics. So okay. right when I right when I was kind of getting out of the medical malpractice defense, I ended up working on the campaign of a state senator named uh Kasim Reed. Okay, okay.
1: So that's an that's that's interesting jump because a lot of people try to make that jump and they find themselves unable to do so. Was it through, like, relationships that you landed that spot?
2: It's an interesting conversation. So I had a group of friends. Like I said before, I was interested in politics, but yeah. it was very academic, yeah. right? And so I had a group of friends who we would talk about politics in a very academic way all the time. Every time we came together, we would talk about it. And I'm like, man, we, why are we just talking about right, it? Right, like, right. we could actually do something about it. We have a mayoral race coming up. So why don't we research the candidates, choose one, and then just go help? So we researched all the candidates. We saw a guy who at the time was a state senator uh, who stuck out. And so we really just communicated with his campaign and said, hey, how can we be helpful? And so we started from knocking on doors. I mean, I got to experience, this was great because I got to experience the whole campaign experience. Right. Uh, From knocking on doors where a lot of people didn't even know who he was to all the way gaining trust and actually doing, you know, debate prep and stuff like that. Um, we, we, you know, we built a relationship and worked our way up uh, to do that just initially as
1: volunteers. Gotcha, gotcha. So you, you were with him for a season then with this candidate for a season. Yeah, for um, a, almost two years. Almost two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see this kind of coming together now, The how, how you get into the political space. When did you, and I'm sure it's in many ways all along, But I'm thinking about how, because you have, and we've talked about this, a kind of a very needed and nuanced understanding about how faith intersects with politics. Are you thinking about that in depth, even at this point, even as you're working for an elected official? uh, Or is this something you kind of see absent over time and then feel like you need to kind of step into a space?
2: So I was working on the campaign, and to be honest, I wasn't thinking about it that way initially. Yeah. Um, I was reading all these, you know, political, uh, these, you know, books r- uh, written by yeah. these great campaign managers and all that stuff. And so I really was kind of cutthroat about
1: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: I really went in with the understanding that people hire the person that's going to do what they got to do to get the things done. And so that was, and some of my mentors, that's the kind of position they took. And so initially, that's what I entered into it. Almost transitioning because when I stopped playing football, there was kind of a void. Um, I probably had made it bigger than it should be. And initially, and I think wrongly probably, politics filled that void for competition, gotcha. for all those things that I was gotcha. getting from football. I got it from from politics. So initially, no, I wasn't thinking about the connection between or the intersection between faith and politics when I initially got into gotcha. it, unfortunately.
1: Okay. No, no, that's, that's real. And so you're getting a download of kind of the ways in which – it kind of normatively works in terms mm-hmm. of people's strategy and power. And so you really, you're kind of indexing all of that. That what I think, am I, as I'm thinking about it, probably be useful for you because you know all this stuff. It like, was huge. Yeah, It
2: was huge because not only, and, and I tell people, if you want to get into politics, work on a campaign. Mm-hmm. Because not only was I kind of interacting with the business people, mm-hmm. you know, with, with all those folks who are, who are kind of the base of you raising money and all that, I was also interacting with the community and one thing i think folks who you may study you know political science or whatever you don't know nothing until you interact with the community like you can't go to school and learn how to interact how to deal with, with, the with people how to, right yeah, how to there were, people. and i had some great some awesome uh, mentors when it came to really getting in the community and serving first because a lot of folks, especially in Atlanta, that you're not going to get respect from the community unless you serve first. And I that. had mentors that forced me to do that. But being in a campaign helped me interact with the, the kind of power structure, but also the grassroots side of it. And that and I think those lessons have been huge for me. And I think I think that's where I really kind of cut my teeth and, and learned what politics was all about yeah. on both sides. Because no. some people only get one or the other, right? Some people just get the grassroots, or some people just get the kind of power structure and the folks who are the, in the donor class. I was uh,
1: fortunate to get both of those. No, that's what's up. And so you you were working with, with this uh, individual, and I, this may be further along in the, in the chronology, but talk to us about, because you engaged in a kind of a formal way with the DNC as a delegate. When did that come mm-hmm. along?
2: So that was a little bit later. So okay. the the candidate I was w- working with became the mayor, uh-huh. uh, Mayor Reed. He was in office for two terms. And and that was in, started in 2009. In 2012, one of my mentors, who is Councilwoman uh, Andrea Boone, uh, the daughter of Joseph, of Joseph Boone, who was a civil rights leader, she was putting together a a slate to run to be delegates at the democratic national convention. Okay. And so the uh, two other people on the slate were like the Dean of the city council. Uh, he had been there for, for years, uh, a CT Martin, another one of my mentors. And also, um, one of the commissioners who had been there for, for, for a long time and they just wanted somebody younger and so gotcha. you, they were like hey we want to bring the new generation along and so I was really just in 2012 I was just tagging along right, so we ran right, together right. we just I mean blew the, the field away we won and ended up going up to uh, Charlotte okay, yeah. uh, for for the Democratic National Convention which that convention
1: was there would be no and campaign without that convention yeah so I, I, and I, I know this is a critical moment so by, by this point you're thinking about the intersection of faith and politics.
2: I'm starting to think about it because I'm looking at some of my friends and I'm looking at some of the candidates who I'm running their campaigns and I'm seeing how far to the left they're being pushed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, in my community, right. when I sit down at the table with my family or when I go to the community center, or when I'm just having conversations with the grassroots, they're not this far left. right? Why is it? that all my folks, when they're running for you know office, they end up getting these questionnaires and all this other stuff that pushes them to the left. And so I was starting to realize that, but it really came to, to a head at the, the convention.
1: And this is a big point, man, because I'm always talking to people about this, and you mentioned this, and I think this emerges from your work, grassroots level in community, particularly when you're talking about black community, which church is still a very strong staple entity there. And when you come out of these more traditional black church spaces you very quickly get a sense of it's like yeah this place is this space is located in a very kind of nuanced but very clear kind of socio-political space and posture and i've often seen people trying to interpret that and leave with the wrong interpretation Mm -hmm. because of how people situate themselves politically yeah and they Mm -hmm. make conclusions about right so so you you saw this as well
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah,
1: and and it's 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 a interesting thing to see people kind of trip over themselves making wrong conclusions about where communities lie. So when you ask when you ask yourself the question, why is it that when I see individuals running to represent these communities who are situated in particular kinds of ways, what was the answer you came up with with to the question of why are they posturing themselves so left in a way that is dissimilar to their community? Why, why do you think that?
2: It became clear to me that the progressive, you know, the left, the far left was controlling the reward and punishment mechanism in urban politics. Mm. So what was happening was while you had a critical mass of folks who were more traditional or uh, centered on social issues, Mm -hmm. they were not controlling the reward. They weren't controlling what was going on and they weren't controlling the politics of it. Um, not that they weren't a force because they were voting, but there was an organization around the kind of social issues and all that, and they weren't the ones who were in the donor class that were saying, hey, if you want this money, if you want this exposure, if you want this writer you know, at, at, at the, uh, on this paper to write about you, you need to be in line with what we're doing. And so I, I started to recognize that and said, oh, this is a matter of organization, and this is a matter of speaking up on certain issues that's just not happening. Yeah. And I think whether you're talking about the political right or the political left, it was also a, a, um, a product of the fact that the leadership class is out of step with the grassroots. Mm-hmm. And so you have people who are representing the gra- they're representing the folks that I'm talking about, whose values mm-hmm. are very distant uh, from those folks. Gotcha. And I think, you know, in a way, that's almost a miscarriage of democracy, right? That's something that, that shouldn't, that's not how it should be
1: but it's something that we're seeing more and more. Yeah, because at that point, I mean, definitionally, the word representation takes on, right? You've you've redefined what representing the actual constituency looks like. Exactly. So you're you're at the DNC, and you are now a delegate uh, to the convention, and you give this speech. Kind of walk us up to that.
2: So that's the second. That's 2016. That's 2016. Okay. So I go to the 2012
1: um, Democratic
2: National Convention, and – the thing that the reason why this was so transformative, or, or just a moment that that kind of changed me, was there the the left, the far left, was trying to take God given out of the platform. And folks mm-hmm. may remember that they were trying to take God given out the platform, which was just a nod to natural law. It wasn't anything mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. any specific religion. Mm-hmm. If you do have inalienable rights, then they have to come from somewhere, right? Right. So they're trying to take this out. I'm like, okay, we'll just vote. And also at the same time, they were kind of they were trying to put the gay marriage conversation into mm-hmm. the platform as well. So I'm like, it's not the end of the world. We'll have a, a vote on it. And yeah. what happens happens. So what happens is when you go to these uh, conventions, you meet in your state delegation and vote okay. on stuff. And then okay. you go to what everybody sees, which is in the arena right. in the large delegate right. where, where all the, the delegations all the come together, where they were all the signs and yeah. all that stuff. So I'm just waiting to vote to see what's going to happen. Um, so when it came to the same sex marriage issue, they kept delaying it and delaying it. And like, we're going to vote tomorrow. We're going to vote. So we, f- if, when it finally came to a vote, it was like the last day, the day before the last day, the chair of the uh, Georgia Democrats came up and said, well, since nobody objected, we're actually just going to put it into the platform. Mm. We're like, objected? This is supposed to be a matter of a vote. And you have these community leaders who were voted. These people were voted into their positions, right? right? right. You have... You have elected officials who were delegates who were voted into these positions. And that issue hadn't gone as far as it has now in 2012. So people are looking around like, what you talking about? But at the same time, nobody stood up and said, hold up, that's wrong. Because it was disrespectful, right? Right, Like, my whole thing was, I didn't think... I wasn't one of those who thought it was the end of the world, but I was one of those people who said, don't disrespect people by just skipping over them and just doing what you want to do. Right, right. And that moment... And I didn't step up either. I think I was maybe the youngest delegate in the the Georgia delegation. I didn't step up and say anything either. But that moment stuck with me to say, why didn't anybody say anything? Mm -hmm. That was disrespectful. Um, And so that happened, and then... When it came to, we went to where all the delegations come together to do a voice vote on taking God given out of the platform. And so they do this voice vote, everybody screaming. And it was clear to me that the folks that wanted it taken out were louder than the folks that wanted it in. Gotcha. Right? They were, gotcha. they were serious yep. about what they wanted yep. to do. Um, and so it got political. They knew they didn't want to throw the right any red meat. And so they kept it in anyway, but they shouldn't have. And there's mm-hmm. like, you can go on YouTube and see the video. It's obvious. It was a very awkward moment. So at that moment, it was like for me, it was okay. There are too many Christian Democrats who value who value the things that a lot of people in this party are trying to throw out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't have a voice right now, and I got to do something yep. to give them a voice. And mm-hmm. so I left there like, I got to do something. Yeah, this is the, I'm, I can't. I can't sit here and, and yep. just let this happen because people aren't being represented. And so yeah, I went back and started trying to organize.
1: Now, uh, one more question about that scene because it, it's just fascinating. So, without actually taking the temperature of the actual folks who've been voted to be delegates at that moment, they just said, "We're just gonna, we're just, we're gonna move it in." Talking about gay marriage. Yeah. Were folks talking about it after that moment? Like, I can't believe that happened. Or a little bit yeah. but it
2: was muted i mean people were people were like you know now we know where the president is on it we don't want to make it an issue and this and this is where the kind of the tribalism and all that gets to us it's like yeah that was wrong yeah. but the other side is so bad yep yeah. yep yeah. That we can't give them a foothold or we can't give them red meat to make this worse. So it was, I mean, I think people let go of it pretty pretty easy. And I yep. think both base, I think when you look at the right and the left, they both work off of that kind of that mm-hmm. fear, mm-hmm. that you know hesitancy to, yeah. to say anything. And, and it benefits them because they can push the envelope yeah. and make you feel like you're against the group. Yep if you step in and say hold up this is going too far oh oh yep. you must be trying to help the republicans yep. right you yep. must be trying to help the democrats and they they i think they both sides feed off of that
1: no that was a big um topic and i remember cuz that was way before i even got into into this space and started working on the hill that there was this understood conclusion and in many ways i understand why that president obama was just under so much criticism and fire and under so much kind of duress coming from the right, that in many ways, and talking about the Black Christian community, we're like, yeah, we definitely not there, but okay, right? It was it was kind of like uh he needs us to be for him. That's a total misstep, mm-hmm. but he's already under so much fire. I I, I remember those conversations yeah. in the 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 local communities I was in. So I wrote about this
2: in the um. In Christianity today. Yeah. And I said, I I talked about how urban Christians had let Obama down by not pushing him. Mm -hmm. So as you know, just as well as I do, politics works by putting pressure on politicians, right? Mm -hmm. Most politicians, and not to say that, you know, most politicians aren't leaders in the way that we think they think of a leader in general. That's true. Right? They they read the tea leaves. They go where the pressure is to some extent. That's not to say that there's no integrity or anything like that, but they... They're pushed more than than we recognize, and so I think when as urban Christians we decided to just be defenders of the president, mm-hmm. right, rather than to actually push him to do certain things or not to do certain things, we did him a disservice, uh, and we and and also ourselves a disservice by saying no, we're just going to protect, we're just going to defend. Well, somebody's still pushing. Yep. Um, and, and, and so while the yeah him. while the far yeah. left was still pushing, we were just defending against the right and i think uh the president ends up getting pushed a lot further to the left than he might have had we been doing our jobs and so one of the things that the and campaign talks about is the relationship between us and politicians
1: yeah yeah
2: the relationship is not i say it's more of looking at them as looking at them as servants than mm-hmm. it is looking at them as leaders and mm-hmm. so if we would looked at him as a servant who yeah i'll protect you in in, in some instances but you're here to represent me. I got some things I need you to do. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's a whole different relationship than the reverence. And you you can show that reverence or whatever to, you know, you can show all that stuff more so to your pastors and stuff like that when you need to, right? right? You don't necessarily need to show that to politics. I would rather you be a, a little more pushy, right, <laughs> than, to, than to be so reverent of politicians that you just let them do, you leave them to their own devices. No, that's it. That's true. Right? And that's That's problematic.
1: So we get to 2016. Then how do you become a delegate in 2016? So 2016,
2: I've gone back. So there's there's a few things that happen in between there. And, to, and after 2012, I go back to it, Atlanta, and I create. I'm like, I got to do something. I got to start organizing. So I create this group called Crucifix and Politics. I remember that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so all I do. I don't care if whether it was on social media. If I see somebody who I know is a political who runs campaigns, who might run their county party and you say something about Jesus that's halfway, you know, uh traditional, I'm right. hitting you up. Right, right, like, hey right. man, I saw what you said. Right. Hey, we need to go to lunch. Right. And Where would that come from? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, from? anybody I'm, right. I'm telling you. Like I was just going all through the internet, anybody I could find who said something like that. And so I ended through through doing that, I ended up bringing together probably about uh, 8 or 10 folks. Gotcha. And these were folks who kn- who knew politics, who worked in politics, they were politicals, they were optives yeah. they were doing real work. And really started just bringing them to my church and just talking about politics, talking about how they felt about the leftward kind of push that we were receiving. Yep. And it was very clear that everybody was uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. But nobody really thought they had the voice and everybody felt like they were alone. And that was kind of by design too, right? People yep. felt isolated and it's like I don't want to this is how I make my money. I don't want to you know, be in a position where I'm, I'm, I'm blackballed. Right. So, so we started talking about, you know, uh, Daniel and how he interacted with government. So it was like a support group almost slash very organically, like a support group slash a uh, Bible study. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we talk about Daniel, we talk about Paul when he went into the uh, Agora, when he was in Athens and mm-hmm. how he interacted and all those things. And what I began to notice was, even though it was a small group, when we went back out to the Young Democrats meeting or we went mm-hmm. back to do something else, everybody was emboldened now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah Because
2: yeah, even yeah. though it was only, you know, uh, eight or nine of us, I'm not by myself. Right, right. And so if I say something and I see my, my man Justin here, he's going to say something with me. And, and so a light bulb went off. I'm like, oh, there's something to this. So one of the things we did, which was really interesting, is we, when the Hobby Lobby case went down, mm-hmm. the Young Democrats of Atlanta through a panel because everybody on the left was freaking out. This is the end. Women are going to be, you know, all this, you know, uh, all the, all this, all this stuff, these, these scare tactics, the alarmism that the world was over because of this decision. And so what we decided to do, because they were going to have folks from Planned Parenthood on the panel and all that stuff. So we said, look, we know that this case isn't what they say There's th- mm-hmm, that it is. Mm-hmm. I'm an attorney. I'm going to get with some of my boys. We're going to break this case down. We're going to go to this uh, panel yeah. And we're going to tell everybody what's really going on. Because my guess was most of the folks, even on the panel, didn't read the case. Right? So we prepare. like Because that's our thing. We're going to be prepared. Like People may not think, they may think Christians that throw Bibles at people's head. No, we're going to go in there prepared. So we go to the event. It's probably about four or five of us. We let the folks say what they're going to say. The world's ending. This is, you know, all this other stuff. And then after they get it out then we start raising our hands and saying what was really what was really in yep. the actual case yep. right the, the 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 tests that you had to go the ba- the balancing yep. test that you had to go through yep. we even you know i even had my folks name off some of the more uh progressive or liberal legal scholars that said it wasn't it what wasn't they, said, what it they was, said it was right, yep. right? And so it was interesting because we were so much better informed. It was so obvious by the time that the event was over, people were asking us more questions than they were asking the Planned Parenthood <laughs> folks and whoever who were on the panel. Right. And we even had a judge and I was just looking at the email the other day, uh, a lady who was running for judge or she might've already been a judge hit us up and say, you taught me, you guys taught me about wh- what that case was really about. I didn't know. I didn't know the depth of it. Thank you for handling it that way. And so what we were trying to do was change the narrative of how people look at Christians, what our preparation looks like, yep. and 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 so those are the, the type of things that we started to do. Then came 2016.
1: Now that I want I want to real quick because I think it's important what that scene represents. There you had an event that was aimed at informing people who were probably upset about the decision and kind of rallying them and breaking down what it was. But what you what you point out is important because I feel like this has become a staple of what these things look like even now. Mm-hmm the panel who's supposed to bring the expertise on what the the case is about and and obviously pulling out stuff that confirms how people in the audience feel yeah. they didn't even know what it was about
2: no they hadn't i mean generally they knew what they saw on msnbc
1: right but they didn't read the case for themselves it was clear that that i feel like that has become characteristic of how these things work it's not even about what the thing is about anymore? Yeah. It's about the talking points and rallying people up. I I just think I just think that's fascinating in a in a disappointing way. It's just really fascinating how that has developed. Oh yeah. So leading up to the to the DNC convention, you're you're now a delegate. So
2: uh, one more thing yeah, before yeah, I, yeah. So one thing that I realized about crucifix and politics though was that the change wasn't going to come from the political class. Okay. So I had these group of political political operatives. We were getting together, all this, but I was like. We need something more because they're still kind of a little bit hesitant
1: yep, because yep. of
2: their jobs and all that yep. stuff. They got they were emboldened a little bit, but not enough. Yep. And so I started to say, I need to connect with young pastors and young faith leaders and really connect with the grassroots to to move this forward. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I started reaching out to cats. I think I I, I um met up with uh John Onwechequa, Pastor mm-hmm. John Onmuchequa in Atlanta. They were, you know, these cats, uh Leonce Crump, Pastor Leon's Crump in Atlanta, these were cats who were socially concerned, yep. but hadn't really met anybody in Atlanta who was deep into politics, who was a Christian that they could trust that could show them how to really get into how to the get conversation. In it. Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, so we met and just started talking. John Owencheco introduces me to show uh Baraka. Like I said, I was just kind of going around the internet. I was in a lead Atlanta group with Pastor Angel Maldonado, who's yeah, a yeah. Puerto Rican brother who's one of the founders. Saw him say something, like I said, about Jesus <laughs> that right. was right. Yeah, halfway traditional. That come from? yeah, I come yeah, from? yeah. So I brought to you know me. Show Baraka and Angel Maldonado end up getting together and coming up with the AN campaign. Gotcha. Okay. Then once we these were very early days of the AND campaign. Then when we come up with the AND campaign, I say, you know what? I'm gonna get my uh crucifix and politics folks together. We're actually gonna run this time in twenty sixteen for the Democratic National Convention, but we're gonna run on a biblical platform.
1: Okay. Okay. Right?
2: So we're gonna say what they don't want us to say, what they're trying to silence, and we're still gonna win. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we did. So I, I go up, I, I'm running and I give a speech. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, technically I'm a Hillary Democrat, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a Hillary yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a delegate. I didn't even mention a name because yeah. I was I was really more of a protest de- yep. delegate. That was just the easiest way to get there. Yep. And so I gave a speech where I say, look, there are a lot of Democrats, including a lot of church folks in this room who believe uh, who are pro-life who believe in religious liberty, who take a different stance when it comes to uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and do so in a very compassionate way. And you cannot silence them. You have to allow them to come to the table. And, you know, it was a two-minute speech and I basically said, we're here and you need to allow us to the table because you can't actually win without us and you're not going to get away with ignoring us and thinking that we're just going to eventually go along with you for much longer. The crowd goes wild. My slate wins by almost double the votes of anybody else the whole slate w- wins this is in John Lewis's district this is in what you would consider right. a progressive district right. and we wipe the floor with everybody because
1: else. in that moment you you gave voice to something that they probably hadn't heard given voice to before right. had suppressed it i guess we i guess we just don't look over that stuff and, mm-hmm. and then you come up and they're like yeah that's me that's right. exactly right mm-hmm. yeah. that's yeah no i, I think but we
2: have the video i mean it was it was it was intense but the support was real. Yeah. I mean, and and you, and you saw, like you said, they just didn't know that was an option. Right. They saw either you're, you know, either you're going to support the far right and all this stuff going on, or you're going to do what we say in the urban, you know, in the urban space, where we're going to be secular progressive and you're going to follow behind that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. instead of taking it, our whole thing was was instead of the lesser two evils, who do you, who are you and what do you represent? Yeah. And
1: that's what I was trying to give a voice to. And one of the things, and and this, you all may have given definition to this over time, Uh, or or, early on, because I feel like that's, in many ways, that's what the Anne, I think, seeks to represent. In many ways, you all brought with you in the beginning of this work a kind of critique of both the right and the left. Um, Talk to us about how you all arrived at what that critique was from both sides and then how you emerge as this kind of position that is kind of rejecting the false choice of what it is that you all saw missing or going wrong on both sides.
2: So I think, as everything else, you got to start with doctrine. Mm-hmm. You got to start with Scripture. You got to start with what your what your theology is, and that's where we started. We said, okay, let's look in the Gospel. Let's look at how Jesus interacted with people. Mm-hmm. We have a political landscape that says either you're for justice mm-hmm. or you're for moral order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no in between. Like if you if you're if you're going to be out there talking about how important it is to support. Uh, folks who are in poverty or how important it is to support immigrants. You're not going to be over here talking about the unborn and religious liberty. That's that false dichotomy that we had. Mm-hmm. But when we look at, when we looked at how Jesus interacted with people, that wasn't, that wasn't that way. There was that, that false dichotomy didn't exist. Mm-hmm. There was a, a liberation narrative there. There was him releasing people from bondage, releasing people from persecution. But there were also that sin no more. There was also a recognition that there was internal sin and internal bondage that people had to deal with. So our thing was, how do we get at the fact that Christians have to be about justice, which is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible, right? But we also have to be about moral order, and those two things aren't in conflict. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so there was yeah. this 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 false dilemma that was created because we made love and truth, compassion and conviction, as if they were at odds when they really weren't. Yeah, and that and and we began to see that the gospel brought those things together. The gospel brought justice. Uh, together with moral order, love together with truth. And so that's where we came with the and campaign, that instead of having this false divide, it's both. It's love and truth. And the fact of the matter is you don't really have love if there's no truth. Right, right. Right. And you can't really have truth if there's no love and compassion. Yep. Uh, and so that's really where the, the framework came from. hmm. Really from the basis of scripture and having a very high view of scripture and saying, what does the Bible have to say about this? Let's apply that to how we engage politics.
1: Yeah, we, you and I were at this event uh, a few weeks ago, and, and I forget what panel was on, or, and maybe this was just something I pieced together, but... Very important. It will, the point was brought up that if it's love or a conception of love that is devoid of truth, then that leads to licentiousness. Like yeah. you're just approving everything. Yep. And then if it's truth, you know, I'm just about this truth. There's no love and compassion. You end up doing violence to people. Yep. And the truth you're trying to trying to support. So you 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 give this talk. You you see the you see the response. People who feel like they've been given a voice. You also have some folks who are like, that's not what you do. You're not supposed to be doing yeah, that. Yeah,
2: yeah, There's Talk that's to right us right. about that just a little bit. So as soon as I got done speaking, I go out into the hall to go to the restroom, and I'm accosted by some guys who are like, "That was bigoted. How could?" And, and everything I said was in love,
1: right? Nothing
2: right. I said was was bigoted or anything like that. That's not how we talk about the issues. But you know, folks can't handle nuance, right? So they got to right, they got to right, label you right. somehow, even even if, if if it's not an accurate uh, label. And so, I mean, they we had a conversation, you know, a real conversation. But they were upset. Thankfully, it didn't get violent or anything right, like that. Right, I told right. the brother, I said, "Man, I love you. I don't, I don't have anything against you, but I have beliefs, and yep. I'm going, to, I'm going to voice them." Uh, so that happens, and then later, a group tries to have me removed from the Georgia delegation by saying that I was being bigoted and uh, all these other things. Now, what they don't know. Is that I, I anticipated this, right. right? So this is the benefit of actually being in politics and doing stuff like this. <laughs> right. I anticipate this is going to happen, so I videotape what I said, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So the you know the Democratic Party of Georgia is getting all these complaints. They're trying to decide what they want to do. Not only did I videotape it, but waiting in the wing, I have these pastors who they don't want They don't want. They don't want that smoke, right? And I knew they did. they wouldn't want that smoke, so it it went away fairly quickly. Yeah. But there was an effort to kick me off of the delegation. Because I said things that people didn't like, even though if they were said in love and said with compassion.
1: And said in a way that, that had an obvious, like it was obvious that people appreciated what you said. Right. That just shows, right. that's, it's very fascinating how there, there's a willingness to like give inattention to that. It's right. like Justin, it's not like Justin gave a speech and there were crickets. Right. Like he, he talked and like a lot of people there were like, that's exactly right. So this is very interesting. So so you get you get that kind of response as well. But then and campaign kind of takes off, and and you all find that you all have given voice to a posture, a disposition that many Christians, urban and otherwise, feel feel like yeah that that's my that's my spot. Mm-hmm. What does I, as I don't want to take up too much of your time, we can talk about this all day. So what from there as and is more formalized, as you all continue to continue to do the work that you're doing. What's the kind of focus today? What what is what is the kind of aim and, and interest? What does a typical kind of week or day look like for you?
2: So it's a lot of outreach. Uh we do a lot of outreach just trying to let pastors and your everyday Christian know what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Because in our experience, uh once people once folks who are who are biblical find out what we're doing, they're like, man, this is huge. Because what we've done is not create something. We just put language and Organization behind what a lot of people were already thinking. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are feeling homeless. They're feeling like, man, I don't completely fit within this party. Mm-hmm. And we've given them language. So we're continuing to put that content out there. So yeah. content is important. We got the Church Politics podcast with me and Michael Ware that we do every week. So we're putting that content out. We're putting videos out to change the narrative. Yep. So when you're having conversations about abortion or whatever, again, you got to apply this love and truth mm-hmm. to it. And if we're compassionate about it, but also you know making sure that. Our convictions are in the right place, there's a different narrative to be placed out there. And so we're really trying to change a lot of those narratives, really doing a lot of outreach. But one of the things that's important is just education, yep. raising civic literacy. I do something um, every other week called the civic update, mm-hmm. where I just you know take an issue and just break it down for Christians. Because one of the things that we say at the AND Campaign is Christians have to frame the issues for themselves mm-hmm. and frame the mm-hmm. question for yourself. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is if an issue is framed improperly or a question is framed improperly, then you end up with two wrong answers mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or you end up with two right answers that they try to make you choose between the two. Right. So you got to frame it for yourself. And so we're trying to raise civic literacy, help Christians understand the process, uh, understand the spirit of the day so that they can interact in a more effective and uh, kind of informed manner. Uh, so that's, that's really big. We just finished a book that okay. we're going to put out okay. in, in June of 2020, hopefully God willing. Uh, that's really going to be, how should Christians engage politics from should we engage to the relationship, the true relationship between church and state, which a lot of people sure. misuse yep. uh, all the way to, you know, how we deal with, with certain issues. Yep. We want this book to help Christians deal with 2020 in a better way than Christians dealt with 2016. So yeah. it's going to be Bible study friendly, gotcha. go to your church and really give Christians a framework. We're not telling you who to vote for yep. any of that stuff, but we are giving you a biblical
1: framework to yep. work within as you engage, no, I, th- I think it's so important, man. I uh, love all you all are doing, man. Really do, and I, I wanted our listeners to to get it, just a taste of of the background and how you how you got into this work and to hear about Anne, uh, because you're right. I mean, once, once you get that, once you kind of get this lens, you then see kind of what's wrong. Every it's just very obvious. Like you can read an article title, and you're like, that's probably not what that's about. Right? <laughs> uh, I, that's probably wrong. Um and and you so desire to bring people in to kind of adopt this lens right. so that they can kind of be more uh more accurate uh in, in how they assess some things. But Justin Man, really appreciate the work you're doing. I know a lot of our listeners are gonna be like, wow, hadn't heard, glad I now here. Um how can folks get involved? How can folks be helpful?
2: So if you want to get involved, regardless, it's a national organization, our home base is in Atlanta, but we have chapters all around. If you want to get involved, you can email us at engage at andcampaign.org okay. and ask us this question ask us if there's a chapter in your area all that stuff and that's really how you get engaged follow us on social media so we're uh, at and campaign uh, at and and campaign on uh, twitter on um, instagram okay. and so yeah just follow us man follow our, our contents and, and spread the word yeah. right listen to the church politics podcast spread it to people at your church Got
1: Let them know what's going on We're going to have all that information in the show notes For those of you who are listening who want that That, uh, that content, uh, those social media um, tags uh, But Justin, man, appreciate you coming through, man uh, Justin Gibney and Campaign uh, Know about him, know about the work that the Lord is using him in doing Really appreciate him um, So appreciate you coming through, man
2: Thanks for having me, man
0: This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delph, and Conrad Close for getting this episode published online. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church.